As we turn now to God's word, read and proclaimed, would you join your hearts and minds in prayer with me this morning? Almighty and all loving God, compassion and mercy are your names. Redeemer is your name. You have reached down to us. You have reached out to us. You have reached into our lives. You have shown us forgiveness. You have shown us love. We are here today because of who you are. Because what you have done for us. Your love has called us here. Your mercy has called us here. So God, we we pray as we turn to your word that you would continue to speak to us. Speaking to us that word which we need to hear. And that you would give us eyes to see you and ears to hear you. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. For you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In 1992, my family and I moved into a new house. I was six going on seven at the time, and my little brother was four. After the moving truck had come and gone and we were getting settled into the house, I took my brother to introduce ourselves to our new neighbors. So we walked up and down the street, knocking on every single door, and when folks would answer, I'd say, Hi, my name is Matt. I have red hair and sensitive skin. And this is my little brother, Chris. He's allergic to mashed potatoes. <laughs> I heard recently that there's some skepticism amongst the body as to whether the stories I tell about myself and my family are true. And trust me, these stories happened. I truly did walk up and down the street telling people of my little brother's ultimately fictitious mashed potato allergy. When I was growing up, my first friends were the kids in our neighborhood. Upon moving back to Virginia in 1991, we moved into a neighborhood that had a ton of kids my age. And we'd play kickball in the cul-de-sac, we'd hang out at each other's houses, etc. We moved to that new neighborhood in 1992, and that neighborhood also had a lot of kids. And we'd play street hockey in the street, home run derby in my backyard, and over the summers we would walk to the pool every day as friends. I know my experience isn't new or unusual. In some respects, it's really normal. Except for me walking up and down the street telling random strangers about my sensitive skin. That is the opposite of normal. But making friends in the neighborhood, playing with kids in the neighborhood, it's how we grew up. When we moved from one neighborhood to the other, sure, we'd still see some of those friends from time to time, but the assumption was, the expectation was, you'd make new friends in your new neighborhood. Something has happened in the 25 or so years between then and now. Something has changed. Something is different. At least it is for me. I've lived in my neighborhood for three and a half years now. Same house. And I don't know whose house has kids in it. I don't know if any house has kids in it. I see kids from time to time walking to school or to the playground. I see a random bounce house in the front yard of one of the houses near me. But I don't know if they have kids my kid's age. I don't know what the people in my neighborhood do for a living. I think some are retired, 
But otherwise, my best guess is if they have something printed on their car. Outside of two houses, one of which is a fellow United Methodist clergy person, so I have to know that, I don't know the names of the people in my neighborhood. I wonder how many of you feel like you're in a similar position. I wonder how many of you can think back to a time when you knew your neighbors, where either you as a child or your children in, in the neighborhood children played together. Am I getting too schmaltzy or cheesy if I say, I wonder if you remember when we built communities instead of housing developments? And I wonder how many of you that do have good relationships with your neighbors, who do know your neighbors, I wonder if that stems from being in the neighborhood for a long period of time. Perhaps even as long as back to that time when it was expected that we knew our neighbors. I wonder if you feel like you have a good relationship with your neighbors, do you have a good relationship with your new neighbors? I think we have lost something in losing touch with our neighbors. I think we do ourselves and our communities a disservice when we disconnect or choose not to connect with those living closest to us. And this is what this sermon series is going to be about. Rediscovering the art of neighboring. Because it's something I feel, and I'll bet most of you feel it too, that we have let slip. But from the outset, I need to admit that I'm going to mostly be preaching to myself more so than I'm preaching to any of y'all. Because I've let it slip. And I'm going to be need to and I'm going to need to be more than convinced. I'm going to need to be convicted and called if I'm going to take the steps necessary to be a part of building community in my neighborhood and getting to know my neighbors. Because if I'm honest, I tell you I don't have the time or the energy to take on something like this. I work, I parent, I have friends and family outside of my neighborhood and I have to manage those relationships. I don't know if I have any more bandwidth. And on top of that, here's another thing. My home is a refuge, or at least I want it to be. When I come home from work or from being with my friends and family, frankly after my kids are asleep, I want my home to be a place of rest. I want it to be my retreat. And I don't think I'm alone in that. It's why we have man caves and she sheds. It's why homes come with places to find retreat, quiet, and solace. It's why I have a back deck instead of a front porch. So this isn't something that many of us will feel comes naturally. It's going to be a process. It's going to require thought and intentionality. It's going to require things for us that will feel like work. And so to begin with, we are going to look at why this should be a priority for us. Why this should be important. And that reason comes to us from Jesus. This is in Matthew 22. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So I kind of feel bad for the Pharisees. Hot take, I know. 
We really like to harp on how terrible they are or they were. We talk about how they nitpicked every single item of the law and made people follow it down to the letter. But let me give a brief defense of the Pharisees. Ancient Israelites believed that there was a direct correlation between adherence to the law and God's blessing of his people. The prophets point out way back when Israel was an independent kingdom that if they didn't follow the law, that God would give their promised land to someone else. And so the Israelites went into exile. In Jesus' time, Israel and Jerusalem are controlled and ruled by Rome. And all Israel wants is to be a free and independent kingdom once again. So in comes this group called the Pharisees, who very strongly believe that there needs to be reform within the people of Israel. There needs to be a great awakening that calls people back to righteousness and Torah observance. And they become obsessed with following every single part of the law. We often think of the Pharisees as being self-righteous and holier than thou. But on some level, what they wanted to do was follow the law as God had called them to. And they thought it was the way to get back into God's good graces. Now there's plenty of things problematic about this. At least as Jesus will come to teach us what God is like and what it gets, uh, what it takes to get us into God's good graces. Spoiler alert, we don't actually get into God's good graces. By uh, God's good grace, God loves us no matter what. But for now, in their defense, in defense of the Pharisees, I don't think they were trying to shame others as much as model for others what they believed would bring about the shared ultimate desire for the people Israel. That's a long way of saying their heart was in the right place. Which is about as, well, that's, that's just what we say in the South, right? Bless their heart. But anyways, because they were obsessed with properly observing the Torah, because they thought that's how Israel would flourish and prosper, they spent a lot of time arguing about the Torah. Life presents situations that force you to prioritize different parts of the Torah. The classic example is what do you do if your donkey falls into a ditch on the Sabbath? Driving your donkey out of the ditch, out of the pit, would be working on the Sabbath, but leaving your donkey would result in animal cruelty, which was also against Torah. And if you believe that the ultimate dreams and hopes of your people and your country rely on you doing the right thing, you're going to spend a lot of time figuring out what you should do with that donkey on that particular day. And it's not a far cry from saying this situation, from saying in this situation which law is more important, treating your animals well or observing Sabbath, to then saying, well, which law is ultimately most important? What is the most important commandment? This was a common topic of debate in Jesus' day, with different famous teachers putting in their own answers. So the Pharisees come to Jesus and ask him to weigh in. When is the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So when they teach you how to preach, there's this big word for when you talk about what the, what the Bible says means. The big word is exegesis. So when you're preparing, in your, you're preparing your sermon, you, you take the Bible text, you read it, and then you do your exegesis. You tell people what it means. Today, the exegesis is simple. When we talk about neighboring, 
we are talking about what Jesus said was one of the two most important things for us to do. Pretty simple. But beyond saying just do it because Jesus said so, which to be fair isn't the worst reason to do something, why is loving our neighbor that important? Why would Jesus think that half of the way the law could be summed up was to love our neighbors? For that, I want to turn to Paul, where he quotes Jesus. This is in Galatians. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. Paul writes this to a Galatian church that was rife with conflict. They were a church that was biting and devouring one another and being destroyed in the process. The conflict centered upon how the law, how Torah, applied in the lives of new Christian believers. There were some who said that Torah observance and circumcision was necessary. Paul comes in and says, you were set free from the law by the love of God in Jesus Christ. But that freedom doesn't mean we can be horrible to each other. Rather, the freedom we find in Jesus Christ is a freedom to love one another. You fulfill Torah when you love your neighbor. For the church in Galatia, what was needed was to see, was to understand, and was to love each other. That is how their community would be built up and move forward. So you're driving home from work, and you drive by that house. Their grass has been overgrown for weeks. Six weeks ago, you first noticed they needed to cut their grass, and every day in between, you've passed by that house thinking, why haven't they cut the grass yet? By now, it's become more than an eyesore. It's a hazard. What manner of wildlife could be living in the mess of grass and weeds? You're driving home and you think, this is the day. Enough is finally enough. So you call the HOA and file a complaint against them. I mean, what else can you do? Or you're going out for your daily errands and you see a bunch of kids playing out in the front yard. Shouldn't they be in school? You wonder if you shouldn't call the school district on them. Or you're walking your kids to the playground and you walk past the home that has a group of teenagers. And there's loud music coming from the backyard. And that unmistakable sense of an illicit drug. Where are their parents, you wonder? No one ever seems to supervise them. I have young children and these teens are a hazard to our well-being. Perhaps it's high time someone called the police and let them sort all this mess out. These aren't hypothetical situations as much as there are neighborhoods. And we are quick to judge these situations, quick to view them as problems for authorities to solve. We view these situations as issues, as impositions on our house as our oasis, as our refuge. What if the house whose yard is overgrown is home to a man who suffered a stroke? And he would love nothing more than to get out and cut his grass. But he, he can't make it out of bed. And his wife is doing all she can to take care of her household, of the kids, and to keep at bay the grief that if let in would crush her. 
the house with the unruly children and youth aren't so much problems to be solved, but an opportunity to influence? What if these children and youth are looking for a safe place to hang out? What if the children need an advocate to get into school and an adult to guide them there each day? What if the youth are craving someone to welcome them into their home, to provide structure, to help with homework, and to guide them? What if the problems in our neighborhoods are not problems at all, but opportunities? Opportunities to serve, opportunities to love, opportunities to take care of each other. What if Jesus told us to love our neighbors because our neighbors and our neighborhoods and our communities are a gift to each other? What if Jesus told us to love our neighbors because it is through neighboring that we take care of one another? At Spirit and Life, we have always believed something a little crazy. The standard model in churches is that the one pastor takes care of the many people. At Spirit and Life, we have said that yes, your pastor should care about you. I like to think I'm not terrible. Uh, but get into a small group because in sharing life with people in a small group, you will receive more and greater care by a group of people than one pastor could ever give you. What if this idea worked in our neighborhoods as well? We're at the start of a journey for the, these next few weeks. We're going to listen to our Lord's command to get to know our neighbors, to know their names, to learn to call them friends, to hear about their hopes and dreams, to know what's going on in their lives. And in so doing, perhaps we can see these as opportunities for ministry, opportunities to share God's love, that are present to us where we spend most of our time. And perhaps we can learn to see the things that might have annoyed us about our neighbors, the things that might have troubled us, the things that might worry us, the things that might make us wary of these people, are the very places where God is calling us, inviting us, asking us to bring his love and his light. Let us pray. Almighty and all in God. You tell us that the law and the prophets can be summed up in loving you and loving our neighbor. You caution us not to bite and devour each other, but to love each other. And in so doing, build ourselves and our communities up. Help us, God. Help us to see the people who live closest to us, people that you have placed in our lives. Stir up in us a desire to get to know them, to know their names, to know their stories. And help us, help us to see them as you see them. And in so doing, to try to love them as you love them. All this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. In John's Gospel... John begins with a poem about the Incarnation. 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And continues on from there. Finishes with, the, Lord, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Eugene Peterson uh, wrote a rendition of the Bible called The Message, where he... Um, it's not quite a translation. It's more of an interpretation. Uh, tries to get at the meaning of the verse, the verses, uh, in as plain English as we can. And so he renders that last verse: "The Word became flesh and blood, and moved into the neighborhood." Nice way of saying it. When we come forward for communion, we are reminded that God in the Almighty became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. And it's because of that, because God moved into the neighborhood, that we are here, that we are loved, that we are known. So we come forward remembering God's coming into the neighborhood. And we go forth from communion charged to bring God's love into our neighborhoods. Remember that on the night Jesus gave himself up for us, he took bread, gave thanks to God, gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in rem remembrance of me. When the supper was over, he took the cup, again gave thanks to God, gave it to his disciples and said, Drink from this, all of you. This is my blood of a new covenant, poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let us pray. Almighty and all in God, pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and juice. Make them be for us the body and blood of Christ, that we might be for the world the body of Christ redeemed by his blood. By your Spirit, make us one with Christ one with each other, and one in ministry to all the world until Christ comes in final victory and we feast at his heavenly banquet. Along with these prayers, God, we lift to you the finances of Spirit and Life Church. We pray that your spirit would be present here, that your spirit would break through and do what we have not been able to do ourselves. Change what we have not been able to change ourselves, including you changing us. We pray that your power and glory would be at work here without limits. Through your Son, Jesus Christ, with your Holy Spirit in your holy church, all honor and glory is yours, Almighty God, now and forever. Amen. Jesus' uh, Jesus's disciples asked him once, Lord, teach us to pray. And he responded with this prayer, which we lift our voices to say together. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.